for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, but five, or five. Welcome to the Force 5 Podcast, a show where I force my guests to come up with a movie-themed top five list, and then we discuss our picks on air. I'm your host, Jason Kleberg, and today I'm joined by writer and director Seth Savoy. He just finished Echo Boomers. It's out now. It's a great movie. Go check it out. How's it going, Seth? It's great, man. Glad to be here. You know, Glad we're keeping our head above water during quarantine. Yeah, just trying to do our best, and I'm sure that was kind of kind of like a bummer that Echo Boomers came out during quarantine because you didn't get to hit the festival circuit or anything or be in theaters. Yeah. You know, it's kind of interesting. We had a, we had a pretty short theater run. We had like uh we had a hundred theaters, I think, but dude, I honestly got to say, I was like kind of uh, just looking at how everything's played out. Like, you know, this definitely won't be my only movie. So I'm not too worried about not hitting the, uh, the festival circuit as cool as that is but like dude after looking at like kind of how it's all playing out i'm just kind of happy my movie got to play in theaters and keep these theaters alive you know what i mean yeah that's the the dream for every screenwriter and uh and director well none of these blockbusters were coming out you know the indie films had to kind of pick up the slack and yours was one of those that helped do that yeah which i'm super excited about you know i mean as as a you know, as selfish as it would be to have done a festival circuit and loved that, I'm really glad that it just got to help out those indie theaters a little bit, you know. Definitely. So tell us a little bit more about yourself. Like, what are some of those movies that you loved growing up that kind of inspired you? Yeah, I'm a really, really big Ron Howard fan. Um, I really loved just kind of him as a director more than an actor. But um, Ron Howard and Scorsese were the two that I'd always watch. And um, I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas, and I eventually went to Columbia. And then, you know, over the past seven or so years, which we can talk a little bit about later, I've really learned to enjoy more than the masters, these really like young up and coming directors. And um, I I just I think I learn more from them than I do the old guys. Yeah. And that's uh, kind of a good lead into our list today. We're going to be talking about five directors who influenced young Hollywood, uh, which is Kind of a really fun topic because we get to dig into all kinds of movies today, which is going to be, it's going to be fun. Yeah. So you got your list together, I hope. Oh yeah, of course. Nice. Nice. I'm excited. I'm excited to hear. So like, so like when I say, and I hope we're on the same page about this, (laughs) I say like young Hollywood, I mean like directors in the past 15 or 20 years that are under, I don't know, 45 years old. Right there with you. Cool. Great. Originally, when I when I saw the topic, I thought you're talking new Hollywood, which is like the 80s guys. And so uh, I had to go back and and reread and make sure it said young Hollywood. And uh, yeah, I got I got some good picks for you, I think. Great. Well, before we get to the list, first, we're going to talk about what we've been watching. I got a couple things that I've been watching this week. I'll start off with Assault on Precinct 13. Freeze. This is the police. Drop your weapons and place your hands above your heads. On Saturday, six members of the gang known as Street Thunder were ambushed by the police. On Sunday, Cholo. the warlords of Street Thunder swore a blood oath to avenge their dead. 
for the gang called Street Thunder. It is a day of vengeance. It's war in the streets. Oh, Jesus, come on. Come on, I'll give you my money. Just don't hurt me, please. Please. It's terror in the night. It's the most shattering assault on a police station in history. Assault on Precinct 13. This is a siege. It's a goddamn siege. Wow. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen Assault on Precinct 13. A long time. I've I've never seen that. So hit me hit me with like the pitch for it. It's on I saw it on Hulu, isn't it? That's a good question. I have the Blu-ray. I bought the Blu-ray a, a little while ago and I just hadn't watched it and I decided now was the time. This was one of his first movies, John Carpenter's first movies. It's basically a really small contained story about this highway patrol officer who takes a new job and his very first day they basically say hey you're gonna babysit this precinct which is being moved to another location so there's nothing going on there all you got to do is go and babysit and in LA at the time there's this war going on between gangs and cops and it's getting really bloody it's getting really violent long story short this gang launches an attack against the precinct and there's only a few people in the precinct including a couple of prisoners a secretary and this highway patrol officer and their only goal is to make it through the night Mm. really really cool shoestring budget story you can see a lot of the influence that has on other generations just in terms of working with the budget that you have and there's a certain grit to the movie that I thought was really cool, too. Stars Austin Stoker as our main character, Ethan Bishop. And then Darwin Jostin as the prisoner, Napoleon Wilson, who I think gives one of the best performances in the movie. The only weak spot in the movie, I feel, is that they don't really give a face to the villainous gang. And I think that's done on purpose. I think that Night of the Living Dead was kind of a an influence on Carpenter making this film. And he wanted the gang members to kind of seem like these faceless zombies. But I think it would have been a little bit more effective if we could have put a face to the villains. But it's a really cool, really quick moving movie that I think everybody should see. I I always do this with with my friends and and they they kind of think it's annoying. But uh, one out of 10, if you had to give it a number, what, what would you give it? Uh, you know, I'd probably say like a seven. I don't think it's it's definitely not my favorite Carpenter movie, but it's a strong film. It's not my favorite, but I'd I'd probably say seven. Nice. That's I think that's a pretty solid. I mean, seven and above, you should you should be watching. You know, if someone suggests it. Yeah, definitely worth a watch. And I'll get a little bit more into Carpenter later, uh, and and talk about the reasons why it's influence. It's influenced young Hollywood, but. Yeah, it's it's a it's a solid flick. Didn't he? He did Halloween, didn't he? He, he right did. He did Halloween right after this. Oh wow! Wow. So he was just revving up to a massive hit after this. Yeah, this was seventy six, and Halloween was seventy eight. That's that's awesome. I'll check that out for sure. Um, the other day, I watched uh, the Invisible Man. Oh, the uh, newer one. Which is a new yeah, which is a new twenty twenty movie, which I think released like right before you know all the covid stuff happened i think february 24th adrian 
He was a sociopath. He said that I could never leave him. He controlled how I looked and what I wore. Then it was controlling when I left the house. And eventually, what I thought. What happened to him? Adrian's dead. Listen, you're getting your freedom back, okay? He said that wherever I went, he would find me. Walk right up to me, and I wouldn't be able to see him. Adrian is dead. He's not dead. He has figured out a way to be invisible. I was blown away, man. I was absolutely kind of blown away by this film because, you know, I, I kind of had some problems with the with the uh, idea of it, of just the, there being this person that has an invisible suit. Like <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. Like, yeah, okay. But the way they did it was just like, you know, no other thriller I'd seen in a very long time. Like they have these frames. Where, have you seen it? I have. I, I have seen it. Yep. It was the last film I saw in theaters. Oh, wow. Yeah, there was something about those still frames of where, like, it just stayed on this beautifully framed shot. And you were your eyes were just scrolling like you you knew something was happening, but you didn't know where. And it was just so captivating. And uh, I, I really hadn't seen a movie like that in a really long time. It was pretty refreshing. Yeah, there was some scenes in there where, you know, she's just folding laundry and the camera's tracking with where a villain may be, but you can't see anything. And it's it's really intense for somebody just sitting there doing nothing in a room. Right, right. And um, I felt like they took their time with it. You know, they didn't make it cheaply that, you know, a lot of those Blum movies, my my um, my real qualm with how they're made is just they're just such just like pump out and dump it type things and this one wasn't like you could tell that they really spent time with it and it was pretty cool yeah lee wanell is a really exciting filmmaker for me his i don't know if you've seen his uh movie upgrade oh i actually i know i haven't seen it but i know that it's another jason blum movie and i know that's a whole blumhouse thing oh upgrade is so good uh, I actually liked Upgrade a lot more than I liked Invisible Man. I I loved the first half of Invisible Man, but I really didn't like the second half of it. Uh, I don't want to get too much into why on air because it's like filled with spoilers if I tell you why. But he's super exciting. Yeah, I'll I'll give him I'll check it out. You know, I I saw that that got pretty good reviews too. Uh, Upgrade did, which you know, kind of critics are always up and down. But you're you're the probably second or third person that's that's mentioned to watch it. Uh, something else I've been watching. So I recently got my hands on a copy of a film that I've been wanting to watch for a really long time for some reason. Uh, it's a movie from 1982 called Baker County, USA. It was all out war. Innocent students against a self-appointed lawman who wants them all wrapped. It also came out under the title Trapped, and even on the title card, it still says Trapped, but it's under it's on Blu-ray as Baker County, USA. I've noticed that both of those movies are kind of like uh, '80s-ish movies. You must be like going back in time over here. You're 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 done with this new wave of cinema, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I actually love new cinema, 
It's just that this feels like the time to kind of catch up on a lot of old things because we're not getting too much that's new these days. Totally, man. Totally. Yeah. And then I'm also a big physical media collector and I like to find those films that I didn't know about. And this is one of those that falls in that category. So I've I've been looking for it for a really long time and finally was able to find a copy of it. Yeah, I'm looking at this this just kind of cast and and these stills from this movie. It looks pretty interesting. Yeah, it's kind of nuts. It's in the same vein as Deliverance. It's even got a couple oh, of banjo yeah. uh, plucks in there. Oh, nice. If you're into the whole people out of their element in redneck country, this is kind of a hidden gem. So like Texas Chainsaw Massacre-ish? Yeah, it's very Texas Chainsaw feel. Very Texas Chainsaw feel. Yeah, I'm in, man. I got to check it out then. You got these college kids, and they decide they need to get away from school for a bit, so they're going to go camp up in the wilderness, you know, as these movies often do start. They're really close to this podunk town that probably barely has electricity. It's filled with these yokels that are wearing overalls, and then, of course, the women in the town are ridiculously (laughs) good-looking. They're led by this dude played by Henry Silva from all these Italian movies that I love. And he does great. He's like chewing scenery as this villain. His name's Henry in the movie. He catches his wife sleeping with another college student. So he finds this guy and they kill him. But these four college students who were coming up there to just relax, they see the murder. And so it turns into them trying to survive against this these wilderness people and it is uh it's pretty exciting it's got some tar and feather in there it's got some really interesting scenes with tar yeah and uh an explosive ending we'll say that yeah it looks like just by the uh by the art by like the 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 picture art that it has a very specific style like it, it almost looks cartoony it's definitely cartoony in the way that henry silva plays his character There is some interesting dynamics between the college students, which is nice. I think in, especially in the 80s, you had a lot of these movies where the college students just make the worst choices ever. And I don't think they fall into that trap here. Uh, One of them, for Mm. example, is a pacifist. So he has to like get over his pacifism to best Henry Silva. So it's it's a cool story. And And I think more people should see it if you're into those deliverance type movies. I think this is a good pick. It's Baker County, USA from 1982. Nice. Um, Yeah. One other thing I've been watching is the queen's gambit. Men are going to come along and want to teach you things. Doesn't make them any smarter. You just let them blow by and you go on ahead and do just what and how you feel like. Someday you're going to be all alone. So you need to figure out how to take care of yourself. Tell the readers of life how it feels to be a girl. Among all those men. I don't mind it. Chess isn't always competitive. Chess can also be... beautiful. Man, well... I think the thing that really captured me is before apparently uh, Heath Ledger was attached. Yeah, I think he was going to direct it. Yeah, yeah, and he was going to make it into a movie and this whole thing, and and that's kind of what hooked me. And and then uh, 
the 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 lead in it. What's her name? Um, Anna Taylor Joy is her name. And you know, it's funny because like uh, chess is such not a high, you know, pace sport. <laughs> and so like you're like, how in the world are they gonna make chess interesting? And Netflix, you know, obviously finds a way. But dude, it's just from a filmmaking standpoint it's you know it's always kind of hard to turn that filmmaking side of the brain off but like you're watching them and just like the wallpaper and the color schemes and like you can tell it's a set but it's like the most gorgeous set you've ever seen in your life and it's just like damn netflix is just like killing the game you know (laughs) yeah not only uh not only is it well received on netflix but i don't know if you've seen the impact it's had just on chess sales in the United States, have you heard of this? I've I've just heard that they've like quadrupled or something ridiculous. But but tell me about it. Once this premiered, chess sets jumped something like ninety percent in sales in the U.S. And then I read that chess book sales, like books on how to play chess, rose by six hundred something percent. It's, it's nuts. Wow! And you're really starting to see like you know how much of an impact that Netflix has. They really are the king of content. They should have uh, started producing chess sets. They would have been double rich. Yeah, man, they really would have. They would have. They would have been throwing <laughs> that, you know, with the with the next with the next button. It's just to buy the chess set. Yeah, oh, totally. That'd be dope. But but Anna Taylor Joy kills it, man. She she really is um, extremely captivating, and you know, like like anything, there's there's a few story holes in it, but you know, you it's so well done that you don't care. It's so awesome. Those story holes are another another thing that just kind of happens when you adapt a book uh, even when you can get it into a miniseries you know yeah yeah totally i have one more thing i've been watching it's a new documentary series on disney plus and it's called marvel 616 stan always said that the marvel universe is the world outside your window and that the people could find characters they could see themselves in Bringing a piece of art to life is difficult to not put yourself into the work. We were artistic rebels. I can't even imagine the impact that had. Better take off your shoes because I'm gonna knock your socks off. We'd love that, yeah. Marvel 616 is a series of eight little short documentaries, and they basically talk about different aspects of Marvel that you might not have considered before. So it's got eight separate stories. Uh, The first one that I watched was about Marvel and its relationship with Hasbro for toys. And it goes into the creation of all these toys that I played with when I was little, and you probably played with when you were little. They interview this guy who does toy photography for a living. Like, that's all he does. He takes pictures of toys. Um, They talk about how the toys were made, the history of them. And it just explores these really cool different topics. Um, One of them is the trailblazing women of Marvel Comics. One of them deals with the forgotten characters of Marvel. There's just some really neat stories here that you probably never would have heard before. And uh, it's pretty easy to digest. They're like 40-minute episodes. And if you're a Marvel fan, it's it's just really striking content. Wow, that's great. That that sounds like uh, those 
uh, I'm sure you saw it, but that like, you know, our doc about, about Pixar. Yeah. Like it kind of sounds like that of like these really cool kind of forgotten things of the past that they just kind of highlight for a minute. That, that sounds awesome. I'll, uh, I think I'm going to check that one out first. That one sounds great. Yeah, it's really cool. And, and I'm glad that Marvel's doing these small documentary projects on Disney Plus because not only does it help pad out more content, but for documentary hounds like me, it's just it's fun. Yeah, and I, and I feel like they're opening the door slowly to allowing, you know, more and more superheroes and kind of more and more villains explored and kind of like all these things that everyone wants. They're like slowly giving to us, you know, the more that they open up that box, I think the more content we'll get, which will be fun. And I'm sure that a lot of these characters that they're highlighting are going to be featured on the uh, shows. I mean, they have so many shows planned. They got to have some new villains. And I'm sure this is like slowly introducing you to those folks. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Awesome. Here's our list. We're going to be talking five directors who influenced young Hollywood. Let me ask you this real quick. Obviously, you're a filmmaker. What inspired this list topic for you? Ooh, this this um this group of filmmakers is I think people that I look up to and and you know they're they're not only peers but they're they're very inspirational peers and I think you know I think uh after watching a lot of movies I think it's really important to see how cinema is changing now like today what is different from it than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And I think these guys that are that are on my list are people that truly are changing cinema with every single movie they make. And uh, that's kind of what, what, what inspired the list. That's awesome. Um, my list is kind of more around the directors today that take styles from the days of old. So it's oh, nice. like, yeah, so I have... Uh, you know, well, one of them is John Carpenter already mentioned, and and he's really influenced so many different filmmakers now. I think I think we can tie this together though, because I'd love oh, to know course. who you like. Who do you think John Carpenter specifically, directing wise, um, has influenced? Yeah, this is gonna be this is gonna be a really fun kind of juxtaposition because I'm guessing a lot of the people on your list are people that I have on my list, just under a different director. Yeah, yeah, I bet. I bet. Hit me with your number five. Like on your list, give me somebody who's influencing young Hollywood. Yeah, I think number five for me is the Safdie brothers. You could look at a movie like Night of the Hunter, and it's not necessarily a scary movie. No, that's a scary movie. But there are moments where I am genuinely petrified. You know, when they're on that when they're on that river, and there's the singing, and there's that music, and it, you don't there's those close-ups of those animals. I'm frightened, but I'm, I don't know why I'm scared, but I'm just scared. It's just a deep emotional vibration where it's like, I want this to end and I want it to keep going. And then Robert, yeah, you add Robert Mitchum to it and he, his realism. The movie's so he, beautiful too. Yeah, though, so and it's, can, it's tricking you. It's yeah. so beautiful. But then again, there's these moments where you have the, Robert Mitchum singing that song, leaning, leaning. And it's like, I'll listen to that song and I'll get, it'll put me back in that spot of, of him kind of catching up to these kids. <laughs> oh, I love them. Yeah, you know, I mean, when you come out with something like Good Times, and um, I think that really obviously kind of put him on the map, but um, I, I think that their style of filmmaking is, is really crazy. I mean, first off, the fact that they were trying to make uncut gems for, you know, God knows how long, 
Uh, <laughs> and the fact that they finally did it, I think says something about them and um, just tells you how long they've been in the game. But I think that their style filmmaking wise is something that is just kind of different and refreshing. And uh, it's weird. It, it seems like, they've been making movies for a lot longer than just two films. But I think that's just because they've been in the industry so long. I loved Uncut Gems. And I actually considered, in terms of people who have influenced them, I considered Paul Thomas Anderson for my list, who, you know, if you look mm. at the pace of Uncut Gems, for example, where it's so stressful, and then you look at the pace of something like Punch Drunk Love, it's almost like the same feel in terms of stress levels. Totally. And and I think that that's a huge, I mean, the biggest uh, trait of a, of a Safdie brother movies, right? Is it, it just makes you feel so uncomfortable. And, yeah. you know, I, I understand how a lot of people probably really don't like that. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, I'm a, I'm a part of this kind of, new wave of cinema where I truly believe we're like um, uncomfortable stories should be told and that's where they shine. Yeah. So who's your number five? So you said Paul Thomas Anderson, like you, he, he didn't make your list. He didn't make my list. And I'll, I'll just start with John Carpenter. Cause we were talking about John Carpenter. The thing was probably the, the one movie of all the like individual films that I've seen that like probably influenced dogs the most because it's in some ways it's very like, it's the same idea where you have a bunch of guys trapped in a situation that they can't get out of in a very claustrophobic situation where nobody can trust anybody else it scared the living hell out of me and the thing about it is the the thing about it the, the thing about it is the um the tension and the anxiety and the claustrophobia and the fear and the distrust that was running around those men all right came straight out into the movie theater and what i wanted was to uh, achieve that same kind of effect with an audience the thing had with me I'm a huge John Carpenter fan. I think he was super talented and he was making movies through the seventies and the eighties. I mean, mostly the eighties that totally influenced movies that I'm watching today. So when I think about new young filmmakers that are those people that are inspiring me, I'm talking people like Adam Wingard who did the guest. Oh, wow. Uh, Jeremy Saulnier who did green room and blue ruin. And Oh, wow. Yeah, Get Green followed. Room, man. Yeah, Green Room's so intense. Yeah. When you talk horror, it follows David Robert Mitchell. Like, Yeah, awesome. Any of these films, you look at the John Carpenter influence from the choice of music, you know, like the synth music that really when I watched Pre Assault on Precinct 13, it's like, oh my gosh, this is this music is just like The Guest. It's just like Cold in July or... Uh, Jeff Nichols' Midnight Special, mm. uh, establishing geography with really long takes. So when you watch, have you seen The Guest? I have. So when I you have. watch The Guest, you know, and they they go into this gym for a Halloween party, like you understand where these characters are because the geography is laid out so well. Right. Which is hard. It Which is, is hard. Like hard as a director, you know, and as a storyteller. Absolutely green room which takes place all in this one club but while you're in this club with these characters you understand where they are because of the the care that's been put into the geography and i think that jeremy saulnier probably got a lot of that influence from john carpenter in that sense and then it comes you know you got to film economically and i think that john carpenter was a wizard with that uh it take like robert eggers for example who did the witch and the lighthouse 
These are really small, really contained stories, just like an assault on Precinct 13. Yeah, that's funny because Robert Eagers is my fourth. Oh, nice. Well, let's roll right into yours. Once, once the financiers were on board shooting black and white and black and white uh, 35 millimeter negative, as in there's no color version of this movie in any way possible, then it was sort of like, okay, if you want to go crawl around with a flashlight in the back of the Panavision closets and find old dusty lenses that no one's touched since the 1930s, we are over it at this point. <laughs> so, so, so that that part of it, the, the lenses, nobody minded, uh, you know. Uh, but, but it was the format that was a little bit more challenging. But again, once, once, uh, once the financiers and distributor were on board, they were they were incredibly supportive and gave me and my collaborators great freedom. Thank, I mean, clearly, because this is not normal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's number four, and you know what? It's one of those things where. The witch just absolutely blew me away, just like knocked me on my feet. Every time I thought that movie was going to end, I remember seeing it in theaters and I saw it in theaters and he does these very long kind of cuts to black that last like five to seven seconds, like way too long. And I loved that. And um, I just remember sitting in the theater and it cut to black and it was right before, you know, Black Phillip spoke. I, I didn't know that was going to happen and it cut to black and I was like, wow, if this movie ends right now, I'm extremely satisfied. <laughs> and then, you know, it cut back and then the same thing happened. He cut to black again and I'm like, holy shit, I'm, I'm head over heels for this movie. And then he came back with it again and again and again and it just kind of blew me away. And, you know, weirdly enough, I really didn't like The Lighthouse. But I appreciated what he was doing. Like personally, I didn't like it, but I could totally see how people love it. That's a great pick. And he is a filmmaker who will just make you feel uncomfortable in your seat. Oh, man. Talk about it. And and the whole and that was the thing about The Lighthouse that I thought was genius was the dialogue, which he's kind of made it his staple of this like very authentic dialogue. But um, it's just wild to, you know, the what, 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 that whole scene was just like genius. Uh, let's see my number four, I'll go with somebody else who really makes people feel uncomfortable in their seat. And I think that that has trickled down to the filmmakers of today. And that's David Cronenberg. After the first film and the first commercial success with you, mm-hmm. they were anxious to get into the second one. Not quite. Oh, because, uh, shivers uh, caused quite a stir uh, in terms of, uh, well, really because of various reviews that, that came out. Uh, people saying perverse, immoral, and unethical, and so yeah. on. And as a result, because the CFTC is, is, is a government organization, it's a very strange kind of schizophrenia there because ha- they're, they're bureaucrats and they're answered, they have to answer to their various departments, but at the same time, they are expected to be businessmen in the world of filmmaking. And it's a very, those two roles don't go very easily together. And what happened was that people were upset about shivers in, in the houses of parliament, I understand, in the Secretary of State's department. People were walking around talking to themselves about shivers. Probably a slow news day. I think so. I, I can't imagine them not having something more important to, to worry about. Mm-hmm. But in fact, at, at that time, apparently, it was a big deal. Oh, that's a great one. So I've noticed that a lot of filmmakers now are going back towards more practical effects, especially when it comes to violence and gore. And there was a short period in like the late 90s, 
early to mid 2000s where it was, hey, we have computers that can do cool stuff. Let's just use that for everything. And none of it holds up today because the effects look so bad. Whereas you can yeah, go back to... Because we've evolved so much, yeah. Exactly. And you go back to you know the 80s and you watch Cronenberg films from the 80s like Scanners, for example. That gore looks amazing, even today. Made in 1981. Or you watch Videodrome. Yeah. Looks amazing. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. You know, I've never really thought of it like that, but you're totally right. I mean, even when you look at his stuff, you know, I think he did The Fly, didn't he? He did. He did The Fly. Yeah, like, you know, you see stuff like that, and it's just so iconic. You know, people can look at that today, and they still want their kind of stuff to, to have that, that kind of realistic feel to it. I don't know. That's That's a good one. I don't know if you've seen uh, Possessor yet. Have you checked that out yet? I haven't, no. So Possessor is a film that came out this year from his son, Brandon Cronenberg, who has taken his dad's lead and upped it a notch. Like that is a film that I will never forget. Uh, wow. Just with some scenes with just insane practical effects. So check that out. I think if you look to somebody who has really learned from, well, from a couple of old directors but Cronenberg in terms of practical gore effects and it's Ari Aster like if you watch Midsommar like Ari Aster is becoming a master of that making you feel uncomfortable and I think he got a lot of it from Cronenberg yeah you know he is someone that another another filmmaker um that I you just kind of have to tip your hat to him because like he's one of those that like I personally didn't enjoy Midsommar but I totally, again, get it. And I think that, like, it's so one of a kind, which oh, yeah. that's what it's about. You know what I mean? It's about, like, making that step forward in filmmaking. So what are we on? Number three. Number three, which you actually mentioned this director earlier, which I'm kind of surprised you did. Number three is uh, Jeff Nichols. I don't know where I got this from, but it was probably an urban legend. I heard that in Arkansas, they used to run drugs in the middle of the night, and the way they would do it is get really fast, souped-up cars, turn all the lights off, and then put on night vision goggles. I have no idea if that's true, but it sounded cool, and it felt like a cool way to open a movie. So I kind of designed this, this opening that would put these guys on a very fast trajectory in the middle of the night with no lights on. It seemed to kind of, I don't know, summarize this feeling um, that the title kind of summarizes too. Like a midnight drive-in movie, a sci-fi movie I might have grown up on, like E.T. or Close Encounters or Starman. A critique uh, of a lot of my films is that they're slow, and I suppose they are, but with this film, I wanted to make a film that's propulsive. I wanted to make a chase movie. You know, it's funny, because he's from Little Rock as well, and he had, he, uh, we, I actually had a phone conversation with him about Echo Boomers, and he, he, you know, I told him, I had a connection to him through an investor, and uh, the guy was like, yeah, let me get you on the phone with Jeff. And uh, Jeff, you know, kind of saved Echo. I was I was trying to make it for too much money. And then he kind of was like, Seth, you need to make it for less. And um, and just since we grew up in the same city, you know, he's kind of everyone knows about Jeff. And, uh, you know, his movies are fantastic. You know, yeah. I think he didn't get enough appreciation for loving and, um, you know, take shelter. I'm I'm glad how like that was so well received for him and, and I'm happy for him for that. I remember watching shotgun stories and being really excited about him as a director. And I love take shelter and, and midnight special as well. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really interesting to kind of look at him as a creative because as, as much as he is, 
really making strides in terms of, uh, you know, obviously being a director. I mean, he he demands final cut. He kind of does these things that are a little bit taboo. And I think that's great. You know what I mean? That's really making that possible for directors like myself. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. My number three, I got to try and get out of like horror and violence, but I'm going to go back <laughs> to it one more time. I'll go back to it one more time with uh, a director who I don't think gets enough credit. And you can see his fingerprints all over things even today. And that's a director from Italy named Mario Bava. What about Bava? What was the... Uh... Bava, Bava, I love I love the black and white Bava, you know, but Black Sabbath uh, is so powerful for me. It influenced Kronos. And all, you know, uh, Boris Karloff is one of my favorite actors of all times. But Black Sunday is also a big influence because Bava knew how to make the Gothic uh, feel eerie and make the buildings into characters, you know, Kill Baby Kill is another one of my favorites, you know? Yeah. Mario Bava is like a significant Italian filmmaker that has dabbled in almost any genre you can think of. Uh, For example, his film Bay of Blood was one that insanely influenced Friday the 13th. The entire slasher genre kind of owes Bay of Blood a debt of gratitude. Wow. So I got to check this guy out. I mean, I'm all, where do you say he was from? You said he's from Italy. He's from Italy. Yeah. Most of his films are Italian, but when you read different filmmakers bios and they talk about their influences, Bava comes up a lot. Uh, Edgar Wright has said danger diabolic is one of his favorite films, which mm. totally has influenced his, his movies. Um, you look at the use of color that Bava used to use, and you can see Nicholas Winding Refn. Winding Refn, you can tell, loved Bava. You know, someone someone that I thought was really interesting, who I'm in love with as an Italian just artist in general, is um, is uh, that that really a famous Italian composer, uh, Ennio. Oh yeah. You know he Ennio did. Maricola. You know the yeah. You know the woody woody woo all that stuff. You know he's 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 so legendary and. I really think there was something about Italian cinema that really kind of paved the way a little bit, you know? Yeah, there's some really there are some really influential Italian directors. Dario Argento is another one who comes up a lot with like the Giallo movies, but Bava when you when you look at things like uh Guillermo del Toro and mm. Crimson Peak, that's Bava. Oh, wow. Uh, Jennifer Kent with the Babadook. Yeah. Uh, Jennifer, I don't know if you've seen Babadook, but Jennifer Kent, Babadook is like shock and black Sabbath, both Bava movies. So you can see his fingerprints all over stuff. And I think more people need to pay attention to his old films. That's cool, man. That's really cool. I'll have to give him a watch. I've I've really been trying to dive him into some Italian cinema. If you're going to start somewhere, I think Bay of Blood is is kind of a good start. It's a little bit cheesy when you watch it now, but if you watch it and Friday the 13th back to back, you're going to notice Friday the 13th took a ton of stuff straight from Bay of Blood, like ripped it off. Wow. Wow, that's cool. That's really cool. Yeah, let's see. Number two for me 
is Barry Jenkins. No, it's not confidence. This is where I get to shout out my film school, the illustrious Florida State University, where I learned most of the things I know about film. Uh, you have to do everything on set. You know, you have to grip, you have to boom, you know, you have to AD, cinematographer, everything. And so you understand the time it takes for anything to be pulled off. And so when I make a decision like that, I understand. I've already looked and, okay, we move the track here and we back the train up and I got to give Stefan the simplest lines I can so he can ingest them and come down the stairs. I think when you've fulfilled all the roles on set, you have a really, not accurate, but a reasonable expectation of what people can and cannot pull off. And I think when you get on set and the crew sees you appreciate what they do, they will A, work harder for you and they will trust that when you ask them to do something, they can do it. And Barry Jenkins is a, is a very interesting pick because specifically I think that his filmmaking is totally absorbed from an older generation. And I think that you know, he's he's really found his stride in this, you know, kind of, you know, this, he's making a little bit of political commentary and just the way he kind of shoots it and all this stuff. But did you watch If Beale Street Could Talk? No, I haven't seen that yet. So If Beale Street Could Talk, he has these like beautiful kind of single shots where the where the person is dead center. It's a medium close up and the person looks right at the camera. And he does it for almost every single character. And that is something that has just been done over and over and over again. And it used to be done like way back, like in the in the 60s or 70s, they used to do that stuff. And you can tell that he's watched it so many times. And um, and I think that he is he, he specifically also talks about taking a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson stuff hmm. and the feel of that. And in pulling that into his cinema, which I think you, it shows. I need to catch up on more of his work. Yeah, he's something else, man. He, um, you know, he's one of those people that I believe is so large. You know, he could probably, he's probably getting offers to do superhero movies and choosing not to do it. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure he's getting all kinds of offers now. I mean, he won Best Picture with his, with Moonlight. Yeah. And, you know, being just being, you know, a black director in this world, I mean, like, that's a that's a really great thing. And I think studios are seeing that. And it's it's I think it's just kind of catapults him as a as a director because he has such a great style to him. Um, but, yeah, I think he's you. he's someone you, you should definitely just kind of watch. He um, he's he really is a incredible filmmaker. That's awesome. What do you got for number two? Number two, I'm going to go with one of my favorite directors of all time, John Woo. So in the 80s, you had John Woo doing his version of gangster stuff with, you know, and he's taking from Melville. Right? He's taking from Raoul Walsh. He's taking, you know, so everyone's taking from everybody else. But, you know, John Woo's characters had their own suit of clothing and their own glasses and the way they wore the, what a match in their mouth or whatever. So when I came along, it was my thing was to, established my own sense of style and my own sense of like a, a coat of ar- a, a, a coat of armor for them and mine was the black suits that was the thing is in Reservoir Dogs and Reservoir Dogs is a, it's a practical reason why I have them wear black suits but by the time Pulp Fiction came around it's more like no that's just my style my guys wear black suits and it, you know and it's like and it's like Melville's trench coats or like a, a, a uh, 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 John Moose pigeons <laughs> or uh, 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 Leone's dusters. When we think about action films in the 80s and 90s, well, early 90s, 
they're basically all kind of Arnold Schwarzenegger movies or diehard clones, right? They were like right. massive white male takes over uh, whatever using his strength and a lot of guns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then John Woo comes around in the late 80s and he makes both Hard Boiled and The Killer, which turned Chow Yun Fat into this like cool as hell, slim action star because he used guns and he used them with insane amounts of style i don't know if you are have you seen hard-boiled or the killer i haven't and and honestly he's someone that i, I need to watch more of because i didn't know he was so stylized i think he got the short end of the stick when he came to start directing in america because his yeah, because film doesn't, he came from hong kong didn't he he's like a big big hong kong director he was awesome in hong kong I mean, these two movies that I mentioned, uh, he had a movie called A Bullet in the Head, which is an amazing war film. He made The Better Tomorrow. I think he did both one and two for A a Better Tomorrow. Great action films, great gangster films. And then he comes to the United States, and I think his first movie in the U.S. was Hard Target with uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme. And it was butchered to hell. Like they, There was a director's cut floating around online, but it was like a really crappy work print of it. But they took so much of him out of that film and it continued until I think like early 2000s. He just said, screw it. I'm going back to Hong Kong. The the way that he does action is so poetic and so beautiful that it was nicknamed Bullet Ballet. Oh, wow. What a beautiful name. If you watch modern action movies, specifically, if you watch John Wick, Atomic Blonde to even the action in films like Deadpool you're going to see John Woo influence. He changed the way that people started doing action films. And I don't think he gets enough credit. John Wick totally influenced by those, uh, by those early Woo films. So yeah, he's my number two. What would, what would you say his uh, number one movie to watch would be? If I was to pick one John Woo film, it's got to be hard boiled. There's a like 45 minute action scene in that. That is just crazy. I'll check that one out. That one's, that one sounds great. 1992. It's harder to find. So if you can find like a good Blu-ray of it, well, I don't even think a good Blu-ray exists. I think I have it on DVD, but yeah, oh, wow. I'll tougher to find, that. but still good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. So number one pick here is uh, Damien Chazelle. Yeah. It's funny how much compliments you can get by thoroughly ripping a director off. It's, <laughs> it's, um, I, I, I've always been a big believer, and to me, Scorsese is the great example of this, that it's okay to rip off, that, that you know, that you, you got to rip it off, though. You can't just borrow. You can't just, uh, you can't just try cl- different clothes on. Um, it's fine to plunder people's houses, but, but steal it for yourself and steal it. Don't, don't, don't give it back, you know? And I think, that, uh, I think that's what Scorsese, you know, shamelessly does in his movies, and it's what makes them amazing. Um, there's such a love of cinema in those movies, and that at least is, certainly I came to movies through a love of movies. Um, so the movie buff in me informs, informs the movies that I want to pillage from. Damien Chazelle, man, I think, um, you know, it's, I think Whiplash was an absolute masterpiece. I think, I think he, he you can tell, it's like pretty unbelievable that you can tell uh, that he went to Harvard just off of his movies, <laughs> which, which is just kind of crazy to think. But, you know, to, to look at kind of like La La Land and look at the influences of these kind of musicals from the 60s and 70s and 80s, 
it's just really cool to see, you know, and I, I think um, personally as a filmmaker, he's someone who has influenced me probably more than anyone on the list. And, um, and I think one really cool thing to, to, as an example is like, he's made a beautiful representation of if you find a story you love and you tell it in a badass way as a director, people are going to love it. I really love Whiplash. I think Whiplash, just like you, I think it's a masterpiece. And then La La Land came out, and I'm not a fan of musicals, but La La Land came out and instantly became not only my favorite musical, but one of my favorite movies of all time. Dude, that ending, man. I've I've literally like cried over it multiple times in multiple different scenarios. <laughs> oh, yeah. When I watched this in the, in the theater, like not a dry eye in the house. Yeah, it's just it's just good storytelling. And, uh, you know, the first man I didn't love as much. I'm right there with you. But, you know, I, I mean, hey, he gave us like two masterpieces back to back. And um, and I, I really, you know, probably believe that it's going to be hard for him to just because he's set the bar so high for himself, which I think is a beautiful thing in the first place. But, uh, yeah, I think he's really uh, he's really kind of set himself up as like you know, the next, the next kind of, uh, Spielberg caliber style storyteller. And, um, and he's someone that I just can't wait to see no matter what it is. I'm buying a ticket. Yeah. He's fantastic. I think the, the issue with first man wasn't, obviously it wasn't his filmmaking because his filmmaking was amazing in in that respect. It was more just the character I didn't connect to because it made you feel like you were going into space and it made you feel like super uncomfortable in those scenes. You're right. Right. All right. On to my number one. And it's funny that you said Damien Chazelle because I'm going to talk about somebody who influenced Damien Chazelle and this person does not get enough credit. His name's Stanley Donnan. Once upon a time, a lonely boy in South Carolina was sparked by the wonder of movies where he was captivated by everything from cowboys to comedians to, to movie monsters. And then he saw his first musical, Flying Down to Rio, which introduced him to two magical people named Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. They took the boy into a fantasy world of such delight that he changed his mind about going into his family's dress business and started taking dancing lessons. He was nine years old. He kept on dancing. And when he graduated high school, the shy and awkward 16-year-old danced his way up north and into the chorus of a Broadway hit, Pal Joey. And it was there he met the star of that show who was to become his mentor, friend, and in time, his collaborator on a series of films that would revolutionize dancing in the movies. The star was Gene Kelly, the boy was Stanley Donnan, who followed Gene to Hollywood as his assistant first and then as his co-director. And the first film he directed by himself starred his boyhood role model, Fred Astaire. Stanley Donnan had made the big time and for the next 30 years, he directed and often produced a string of classic films. He's the director of Singing in the Rain. Of course. Tons of musicals owe a lot to Stanley Donnan and his direction on that. He was, he's listed as a co-director with Gene Kelly. But when you look at La La Land, huge influence from Singing in the Rain. Right. But another film that he directed was Charade. And Charade has this unbelievable suspense and comedy that I think has trickled down through all kinds of generations. And I think that he needs a lot more recognition. 
aside from charade he did a film called indiscreet he did another one called funny face but any anybody who grew up watching older movies from stanley donnan is for sure bringing that into their game now when and when you look at his cinema history i mean this man directed for just an unbelievable amount of time almost 50 you know 40 years yeah he had a I think he had a period of time where he didn't direct anything for like 20 years, but he, and he's done a lot. Yeah. Wow. That's just incredible. Now, if you were to check out one Stanley Donnan film, I would do, I would go with charade. Uh, it's a really, really great movie. It stars Cary Grant and uh, Audrey Hepburn. Um, oh, and then awesome. Walter in there too. It's really good. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. There's a couple that I want to, just mention that didn't make my list because i'd sure. feel bad if i didn't yeah. mention these two yeah yeah they keep you up at night dude i know first uh i gotta mention brian de palma a lot of movies come out now and they're like oh it's hitchcockian but brian de palma took the hitchcock style and kind of made it his own and i would guess that a lot of filmmakers now grew up watching de palma movies and they use a lot of techniques from him kind of being a more modern hitchcock ah interesting and then the other, I have to mention Steven Spielberg, too. I mean, growing up, I wanted to be Steven Spielberg. I'm sure you had those moments, too, where it's totally. like, oh, I want man. to be the next Spielberg, right? Um, yeah, of course. I still feel that way today. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, takes almost any story in any genre you can think of. He's done cartoons. He's done war movies. He's done horror movies. And he's awesome at all of them. And you look at people like Drew Goddard or Joss Whedon, it's Spielberg light. And he's a he's a director that I, I think has influenced just about everybody. So I would feel bad if I didn't mention him. Totally. <laughs> so that being said, you said Ron Howard was one of your influences. I want to talk real quick about Echo Boomers, but are there are there any directors that didn't get mentioned that influenced you at all? I'm a, obviously a huge, huge Scorsese and Ron Howard fan. I think uh, there are a ton of you know, kind of little Ron Howard flicks like Rush. I love Rush. I think Rush is an unbelievable movie if you haven't seen it. And, um, you know, there are other guys that are just kind of popping up today who've kind of been on the scene for a while, but, you know, Todd Phillips, I think Todd Phillips is absolutely unbelievable. The fact that, you know, you can go from um, old school to The Hangover to Joker just yeah. kind of shows you how flexible he is as an artist. But it also kind of like lets you know as a director that like you can do things of different tones like it is okay you don't have to have a library that is all the same tone uh which is kind of refreshing for somebody who's never heard of echo boomers like what's the what's the pitch yeah so um you know echo boomers is a it's about these kind of five college grads that they get degrees and they can't get jobs so they start taking u-hauls out to these really nice suburbs of chicago and they wait for people to leave and they bust in and they steal as much as they can and um and it stars michael shannon patrick schwarzenegger alex pettifer and leslie ann warren and um and yeah man it, it's a it's a blast to see it's a it's a really fun movie i'd grabbed a lot of inspiration from um you know oceans 11 and fight club were the two yeah. things that I like really grabbed from in terms of like pace and style. And it's kind of based on a true story as well. Yeah. Like I had, I was, um, I'd moved to Chicago and I kind of left film school with a shit ton of debt, like everyone else. And I just kind of started to 
feel frustrated. And, and I saw these newspaper articles about these kids robbing houses and I, I f- could feel the frustration. You know what I mean? Like I could relate with it because I was feeling it too. And I, I kind of took that and ran with it. And, um, and you know, the, the political message side of this is something that, um, you know, I specifically really don't talk about what the message or what the answer is to the movie, because I want people to see it and try to figure it out for themselves. I think a bit of it can be figured out from the title, which I didn't understand the title until I watched the movie and, and then I got it. Yeah. And so technically, I've, which I've, I've said this a number of times to some people casually, but, um, you know, the term Echo Boomers is, is uh, you know, it's really just saying that you're nothing but an echo of the generation before you. And I kind of find that as like a really derogatory term. And and so when we were making the movie, you know, me and the actors always talk about that, that like that term really is a derogatory term for someone who has a degree and can't get a job. Well, yeah, go check out Echo Boomers. It's got a great cast. I mean, Michael Shannon's the reason that I watched it. I won't lie. <laughs> that was like sure. the first thing. It's like, holy shit, Michael Shannon movie. I'm I'm buying a ticket for that. Uh, but Patrick Schwarzenegger also surprised me. I did not realize that Arnold Schwarzenegger had a son that was acting. Uh, and he, oh, when I see him on screen, it's like, oh my God, he he really looks like a young Arnold Schwarzenegger, just not as big. And he was good. He, he almost looks like a cross between Schwarzenegger and uh, Ansel Elgort. He really does, doesn't he? And and the thing about Patrick too is, you know, he he's done um, Midnight Sun, which was a love movie before this, a high school love movie, and then he did Daniel Isn't Real, which is like this kind of like twisted horror movie that he did. And so like no one had really given him this opportunity to like get in the ring with like Michael Shannon and show that he really does bring a presence to the movie. And you know, I, I don't want to ruin it, but you saw you know the the motel scene in echo boomers i mean he really shows that he's incredible yeah there is some great acting in that scene yeah yeah and and, you know that was kind of the biggest thing that i wanted to show of echo for for this was just incredible acting and when we were casting this movie that's what it came down to is like we didn't want to cast just the biggest millennial actor that we could get we wanted to find people that are going to be the next michael shannon's and and I think, you know, for all of my movies from here on out, that's exactly what you can expect. Absolutely incredible acting. And, uh, you know, this story was, was one that, you know, I'm personally proud of, but, you know, I kind of had to craft myself. And since this one's done, it's kind of opened the doors to all these different writers and all these different stories. And uh, I'm really excited to start plugging in some of this talent to some of these, uh, some of these things I've been reading. That scene that in the motel that you're talking about, it was it was kind of a cool and daring choice to just kind of focus on him for a very uncomfortable amount of time. I'm glad you noticed that, man, because that was <laughs> a distinct choice that some producers were like, I don't know about this. And I said, well, I don't care. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. one of my favorite and, shots. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things where he's like lulling him to sleep and it's just so eerie and the film is so fast paced until that moment. And then Alex Pettifer in there too. Like haven't seen him for a little while. That was cool. To yeah. See. When was the last time you saw an Alex Pettifer movie? Shit. Probably magic Mike. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which I was, you know, I, I obviously watched magic Mike before I cast Alex, but I hadn't seen it before then. And I actually kind of enjoyed it, but, um, oh, but I Alex it is great, man. Alex yeah. is great. Another Soderbergh movie. Um, Alex really does have a presence and, um, 
it's it's kind of a shame that we haven't seen him in a while because he really is an amazing actor and i think uh i think we'll see more of him really soon i think i think echo has kind of put him on a lot of people's maps again and uh i think i think he's great that's cool that you gave him that that second chance yeah it's funny too because he um he's just so intelligent and him and patrick both are just so incredibly intelligent and i think that comes across in their decisions as actors last question about the film uh how fun was it just smashing a bunch of shit on camera i mean it's it's pretty great dude i mean uh i mean that was one of the things of like you know everybody was looking forward to those days just because and and what was funny is all the actors kind of had different reactions you know like some actors were really excited about doing it and then when they did it they were like man i don't even know what happened i just kind of blacked out (laughs) (laughs) and then other actors were like oh my gosh i love this one actor was like i absolutely can't do this so it's just so interesting to to kind of see yeah that was that was fun and as i was watching it it's like especially uh Haley Law, who plays uh, what's her, what's her Allie, name? Allie. Yeah. yeah, she looked like she was having a blast, just smashing stuff up. Yeah, she really was. She really was. Cool. Uh, anything else that you want to plug while you're on? Nothing much. You know, the only thing I want to say is Echo is a great example of uh, of you know the the guy who plays Gillis Geary, the guy who plays Jack, is just so unbelievably incredible. And, uh, you know, there's another actor named Jacob Alexander and Oliver Cooper that are in the group that um, those two guys specifically don't get as much screen time as the other ones, but they're absolutely incredible. And, you know, Gillis is someone that I kind of want to throw on people's maps because Gillis Geary, he plays this role in Echo that is just so complicated and he does it so beautifully. And I truly believe that he's he's going to be this really big up and comer in Hollywood and um and that's another great example of like, you know, in a Seth Savoy movie, just like expect some really unbelievable talent. And he's one of them. Keep your eye out for Gillis Geary. He's kind of the, he's kind of the totally. inciting yeah. incident for this. Uh, film. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. And then where can people find Echo Boomers right now? Yeah. They, they can find it on Apple, uh, Apple TV, iTunes, Amazon, Fandango, you name it. It's there. Cool. Go check that out. It's a it's a really cool flick. Very stylish, uh, and it will it will it will keep you excited until the end. All right. If you want to be a guest on the Force Five podcast, the only requirement is that you love movies and want to talk about them. So if you have a top five list you want to tackle, email me at force5podcast at gmail.com or head to the website force5podcast.com, which has a show request form and other Force Five related stuff. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch Echo Boomers. Thank you.